I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security. I rely entirely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. I keep my podcast advertisement free. I'm not funded by any institutions, companies, charities, or wealthy investors. This is all me and you, the listener. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy on Substack. That's meganmurphy.substack.com or directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Terry Glavin, a Canadian journalist, author, and columnist at the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post. Thank you so much for joining me on the Same Drugs. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Nice to be here. So I'm curious to know when you got into journalism and why. Um, I got into journalism because uh, I didn't believe what I was reading in the newspapers. <laughs> um, I got into journalism because I could. It was something I could do. I came up the old way, uh, six years apprenticeship in the old guild system, and then you're a journeyman. And maybe two or three years after that, you're allowed to have an opinion. I was a boy reporter. I mean, I've been in this racket since I was a kid. And um, I've been a reporter and a, a city editor, an assignment editor, columnist. Um, I've covered a number of beats. They tend to be fairly related. Uh, labor, uh, a lot of indigenous uh, natural history stuff. I've written a number of books that sometimes end up on the natural history shelves, sometimes end up on the Aboriginal rights shelves. In the last 20, 25 years, most of my work has been in the category of foreign policy, global human rights. I'm a senior fellow, fellow with the Raoul Wallenberg Center of Human Rights. My last major book was about Afghanistan. So I've been in a lot of weird places with a lot of beloved comrades in uh, Hong Kong, in uh, Central America in uh, in northern Syria with the resistance, uh, the Russian Far East, places like that. And so when you started in journalism around what year was that? I'm going to say, well, I had my first cover story in the Georgia Strait when nice. I was, I think, 19. Is that possible? That's, uh, gosh. I mean, that's great. For that's 19. a long time ago. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is a big question then, considering that context. But what's changed in journalism since you started out in Canada in particular? Uh, there's a lot less of it. That's the main thing. And it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. 
um, because there's been an explosion of digital startups and, uh, you know, globally in the English language, there's this galaxy of um, news sites and legacy news organizations with online platforms, uh, newsrooms, sort of simulacra. You know, they look like newsrooms, they look like news sites, but they're not really. Uh, they're run out of China, they're run out of Caracas, Venezuela, they're run out of Moscow, they're run out of Tehran. Um, and uh, it's kind of, this is actually the difficulties I've had in the last few weeks uh, are directly related to this strange pinball machine uh, of, 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 uh, of journalism, um, where I think most people most casual readers would might not be aware what they're actually getting into and what they're reading. Right. I mean, we hear about fake news a lot. I think over the past year in particular, a lot, a lot, a lot of people have really lost faith and trust in yeah. journalism and in the media. And I mean, people, anybody would know that we should be skeptical of journalism and that journalists have bias and these media institutions have biases. But I think things got particularly bad in recent years. And one of the reasons that I contacted you to talk was because you covered the essentially fake news story around the, um, the discovery of the mass graves in Canada. Um, right. So, I, like a, a little over a year ago in May of last year, I think the New York Times published a headline that said horrible history, mass grave of indigenous children reported in Canada. And of course, this story created uh, an outpouring of, I mean, anger and, you know, I suppose sympathy in some ways, but, you know, politicized responses, we could say in Canada, across Canada. And it turned out not to be a real story. I wonder when you first sort of noticed, like when did you first see this story? Where did you first see this story? And how did you first sort of start to question the narrative? Okay. The story broke in the New York times on the 28th of May. Okay. Uh, last summer, and uh, I I was aware that it was, if I may use the vernacular, bullshit, uh, by the afternoon of that day. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I guess people who aren't familiar with my work might be, or probably should know, um, I... I uh, I've been quite closely associated with uh, what we used to call Indian country. Um, the right of small nations. It's actually what, and, you know, people will often ask, well, how come you're so interested in the Rohingya or the Yazidis? It seems so different than what you were doing before. Actually, it's not. It's the same story, whether it's a Gixan or the Chilcotin or the Stalo. Other people I've worked, you know, First Nations I've worked with. It's basically the same story. We're losing a human language every two weeks. A lot of what gets dressed up uh, in the, the, the garments of, of uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion is actually very deeply embedded in a kind of a gathering sameness 
all over the world. Right. So that's been a concern of mine. And another concern of mine has been um, what people will call fake news. It's related to something that I think Jonathan Rauch does a very good job of writing about. He published a book last year called The Constitution of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I've been quite concerned about this for some time. Uh, I think my concern heightened about 20 years ago when I realized that all of my Afghan comrades, uh, feminists, intellectuals, liberals, Democrats, socialists, um, had one understanding and one way of, uh, of, of talking about the NATO intervention in Afghanistan, where everybody on the, the left, particularly in the Anglosphere, the Euro-American left, was talking about a to totally different country, using completely different language. And this became exceedingly pronounced in the matter of the Syrian revolution, where the Syrian left and the Syrian Democrats and the Syrian feminists, you know, they would look to Paris and London and, uh, you know, places that were the wellsprings of democracy and liberty and uh, social democracy and, uh, and find that they had no friends at all especially in the places where they would have expected to find some friends, which is to say on the left. Mm -hmm. I consider myself a fairly conventional left liberal kind of person. I don't have any ideological commitments, but I've always sort of come up that way. Um, and I, and I refuse to be evicted from that uh, house. That's part of the reason why I get into such trouble. Um, what happened last year was, uh, I thought, kind of intimately associated with this phenomenon that uh, writers like Jeremy Stangroom and Ophelia Benson, great book, by the way, Why Truth Matters. Mm. Uh, also, um, a couple of years ago, um, a writer for the, I guess she was, pardon me, she was the editor of the New York Times uh, book review section, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Michiko uh, Kakutani uh, wrote about Trumpism and explained her basic thesis was, well, that's what you get. Where do you think Trumpism came from? It came from the social sciences and humanities departments. It came from Foucault. It came from Derrida, came from Judith Butler, came from all of these people who've been problematizing the truth. And so, you know, when this demagogue comes along, he proves the axiom. And I've put it this way. Um, if everybody has their own truth or if there is no objective uh, grounding in truth, uh, if we're simply going to dismiss about 300 years worth of hard toil in um, determining how knowledge is constituted, then the version of the truth that will ultimately prevail is the one with the loudest voices, the deepest pockets, and the shiniest boots. So well done. Uh, that's, that's been my concern. And so I happen to be familiar with uh, what we used to call Indian country and also with residential schools. I actually co-authored a book with the former students of one of the largest residential schools in the country a few years ago. Um, and so I also... Uh, wrote a story about 10 years ago, maybe longer, about this strange 
kind of satanic ritual abuse phenomenon, you know, this myth going around. Uh, and I have to credit Jorge Barrera as well from the Aboriginal People's Tele Television Network, who did a great job debunking all of this. This crazed, uh, deranged, United Church, defrocked United Church priest was going around to indigenous communities, reserved communities across the country, you know, with little bags of bones and saying, you know, there's this secret archipelago of mass graves at residential schools across the country, and they were all murdered and put in there. And, you know, the indigenous leadership is in on the conspiracy, and so is the church, and so are several prime ministers, just crazy stuff. And, you know, it was debunked and he was chased out of every Indian community in Canada, indigenous community in Canada. And then, but it was always kind of percolated, right? And then, pow, the New York Times story on the 27th of May last year was almost like, okay, UFOs have landed. I mean, it was like a meteor hit the earth, right? But paradoxically, it wasn't the craziest of the stories that developed through the summertime Uh you know, it became a kind of a stock uh, sentence that you would see in all of these stories by September, you know, the, the, the graves of 1300 uh, indigenous children had been discovered at residential schools across the country. Never happened. Never happened. I mean, never happened. In the case of Kamloops, the chief Casimir, Rose Casimir, never even claimed to have found a mass grave. The, the term mass grave was never used. Um, the, ter the term mass grave was never used. And uh, by the Tuesday, I guess, it was a Thursday, Friday when the story broke, I guess, something like that. And by the Tuesday, she was saying, I never said mass grave. We didn't find a mass grave. What, what are you talking about? Um, I think there's a lot. I haven't criticized Chief Casimir. A lot of people, I think, particularly within the Kamloops community, have been very critical of the way she described what are essentially anomalies in um, in uh, geophysical uh, surveys of an old apple orchard. You know, uh, anomalies picked up in ground penetrating radar that subsequent uh, uh, reporting, site inspection reporting, have suggested are not, not likely to be graves at all. But what was, what that does that mean? Anomalies were picked up, and why did they think that that connected to graves? Well, around the time of this crazy United Church priest, this defrocked guy, um, there were stories that started to come out of Kamloops about, you know, like there's all of these stories that are all very, very similar, often involve, you know, babies being thrown into incinerators, and they're sort of myth motifs, if you know anything about urban legends. And, and um, in Kamloops, there were stories about people being buried in an orchard and kids being woken up in the middle of the night at the residential school and made to go out uh, and dig graves uh, and mm. bury children. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying I actually I don't want to sound dismissive because, you know, the mortality rates at those schools was through the roof. Uh, they were terrible places. They were Petri dishes for infectious diseases like tuberculosis and what have you. I'm just constant. In fact, the piece I wrote wasn't even about residential schools. It was about the media. Yeah. It was about journalism. And um, the Kamloops story 
kind of, like I say, it was kind of like the meteor hitting the earth because it was almost like, oh my God, those stories are true. And I think journalism is largely responsible for this because in the immediate aftermath, you had, for instance, Perry Bellegarde uh, interviewed on a national new television news program saying, well, and the interviewer, and I, he's a nice person and I don't mean to dismiss him. He was just going on what everybody else was reporting. You know, how many mass graves, how many thousands of children do you think might be buried in these mass graves? And uh, Perry was kind of saying, well, you know, we should kind of hold on a sec. You know, we should, we need to do some research here. But I, you know, it actually, that wasn't actually the most outrageous coverage of the summer. Uh, I would invite you to imagine being Chief Joe Pierre, uh, a Khan chief up at uh, St. Eugene's, uh, St. Eugene's uh, Golf Resort and Casino, actually, come early, come often. St. Eugene's used to be, there used to be a residential school there. Okay. Lovely old building. They kept the building, repurposed it for their resort. Um, and the year before, when they were doing some grounds work, some human remains were disinterred or disturbed uh, at the edge of a cemetery, a known cemetery. Uh, and so the people up there are, you know, Tunaka people tend to be very serious about the encounter with human remains and they're mostly catholics up there too and so they took it very seriously and they got around to doing some gpr work in a cemetery that was actually a white cemetery for white people settler cemetery there was a residential school that was built nearby and then there was a hospital and they're mostly catholics up there indigenous and non-indigenous so that was their cemetery and and, and imagine being Chief Joe Pierre waking up one morning and reading in CBC, The Guardian and Al Jazeera and everywhere else that he had discovered the remains of 280 children in a, at a former residential school site. It's like, what the? Yeah. You know, and I mean, th th that, that's pretty crazy. And, and the only and the first thing he said about it was there is no residential school grave. here. We didn't make any such discovery. We never said anything like it. And then Cowessus was the big one, 751 graves, founded a residential school. And this is the thing, when you had uh, uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, taking a knee, as he likes to, he likes to take a knee. And he took a knee at, uh, with a teddy bear, holding a teddy bear, at the, um, at the Marieville Residential School in, uh, at Cowessus, where the chief, Cadmus Delorme, great guy, had said, um, this is uh, not an Indian residential school graveyard. This is a Catholic cemetery. And we don't know if anybody from the, the residential school is buried there. The, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation counts only nine students of the Marieville residential school over its 90-year history that are known to have died after being enrolled at the school. So whether they're actually there buried in that cemetery. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to credit Jorge Barrera, who's now with the Indigenous Unit at CBC, the only reporter who really did any on-the-ground work there, who, you know, he talked to all these old people and saying, why don't they talk to us? Like, here we, we live here, you know? And, and uh, Lloyd Larat, an elder, saying, well, you know, the media came along and Trudeau and and everybody wanted this story about, uh, you know, unmarked graves and and the story kind of took on a life of its own. These graves are unmarked because uh, like most or many indigenous cemeteries and rural cemeteries, uh, the crosses are wooden. Uh, 
there's grass fires, the crosses burn. And so you could say, yeah, that's an unmarked grave. And I guess you could say, yeah, somebody's buried in an unmarked grave. Nobody was sort of, there's no evidence at all that any of these, among the 1300 alleged, you know, burials of Indian children, it's not clear how many of them were burials of Indian children. It's not clear how many of them, if any, were actually, uh, you know, instances of children being put in a in the ground and buried and left without any kind of grave marker. It was um, it was pretty crazy. And I, I I just my 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 objective was to say, what the hell, uh, journal? You know, this is it was about journalism. I've never, in fact, I've, I've concurred and argued for the proposition that residential schools were cultural genocide. Uh, as I say, you know, I've co-authored a book with the survivors of a residential school. It wasn't even about residential schools, but um, it was about journalism. And the fallout was pretty magnificent. It was pretty spectacular. Right. So what were the repercussions of that story? What was the impact? Oh, man. Well, um, let's see. I had the Canadian Archaeological Association and the Society for American Archaeology and the Canadian Association for Biological Anthropology and the Canadian Permafrost Association. Go figure. Um, and... Uh, Indigenous Crown Relations Minister Mark Miller uh, basically saying, uh, calling me a genocide denier. Um, that was that was cool. That was interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'll never write. Uh, I'll, I, I mean, I'm not alone in this. Maclean's magazine, which is kind of like uh, the Canadian version of Time magazine, I'll never write for them. I was a contributing editor. Okay, but I'm not alone in that. You know, they basically jettisoned a lot of their staff, and. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. The, the, the chairman of the board of the Canadian Canada Council for Art for the Arts, which is the primary granting arts granting agency in Canada, um, it publicly intervened in an attempt to have me to so that I would not be interviewed. Uh, you know, you need you shouldn't be talking to this Terry Glavin guy. Well, I guess I'll never get a Canada Council grant to write a book again or sit on another Canada Council jury. I've been shortlisted for Governor General's medals. I've been, you know, I most of the publishers that I've pub, written my written books for you know, rely on the Canada Council. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's about, but the interesting thing too is that I mean, you know, there isn't a, a major news organization in this country that has not that doesn't have journalists, senior journalists who've reached out to me mm -hmm. and said, hang in there. Mm -hmm. And senior uh, uh, indigenous academics and intellectuals in this country reaching out to me and saying, you hang in there. So it's, uh, it's been very strange. It's been uh, pretty has exciting and bruising. And you, one doesn't like to become sort of part of the story, right? Right. But, right, know. I mean, targeting you and making the story about you distracts from the real story. And I think distracts from, you know, people's ability to, or inclination to correct the story, which I'm also wondering, like, did any of these places, any of these media institutions, um, these websites that reported this story about 
mass graves, um, indigenous children. Did anybody correct the story? The Washington Post uh, went with mass graves too, and immediately said, "Whoops, oh. we were we're retracting that." Mm-hmm. Nobody claimed to have found a mass grave. The New York Times is still up. You go to the New York Times mass grave. Uh, generally speaking, um, I mean, the craziness has got, I mean, there's been more, even more recent craziness, which I find really amusing. We should come to it. It's just mad. Um, the, I have to say the Globe and Mail, uh, the deputy editor of the Globe and Mail issued a directive, uh, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago saying, okay, this is how we're going to report the story about these graves. No mass graves, thank you very much. And, you know, kind of a two or three paragraph example of the kind of language that the Globe and Mail is now required to use when we're talking about this stuff. Um, so, uh, but no, I mean, I think we, we, what we need, curiously, Canada has kind of a long overdue reckoning about residential schools every five years or so. It's like, and then we forget. This one was different. This time was different. We saw something like 50 churches being vandalized or burned to the ground across the country. Yeah, yeah. We, it was led by and- the prime minister. And what what were the churches? Were they Catholic churches? Were they Indigenous Almost churches? Almost all Catholic churches. Yeah. Okay. Uh, many of them were in, on Indigenous, uh, uh, on Indian reserves, and beloved of the of the Indigenous people there. Their own ancestors had built those churches. Um, I think I think I kind of took it like a punch to the gut. I got to confess to you. Uh, there was a there's a little Filipino church in East Vancouver, working class Catholics, little shrine church that was uh, vandalized by a couple of white ladies. And at this point, I thought, you know what? These are my people now. You know, you 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 put a rock through a mosque window, and I'm a Muslim now. Okay, you vandalize a synagogue. I'm a Jew. I was raised Irish Catholic. You know, I have my own deep criticisms of the institution of the church and my own deep objections to this particular pope, whatever. Um, but when I see little churches from Squilax and Gitwangach and Lower Similkameen, those little beautiful little Indian churches being burned to the ground, um, this is huge. This is huge. This does not happen in a liberal democracy. This may happen in, uh, in uh, you know, the uh, Hazara districts of Afghanistan, where the, uh, you know, the, the, the Obandist uh, Muslims among the Taliban will, will torch little Shia mosques. No, it's not going to happen in this country without me noticing it, I'm afraid. Uh, it was a big deal. And I think there's a reason, there's a couple of reasons why it was a big deal. And I think they're of particular interest to you and the work that you've done. Um, the proximate cause, in my view, well, that weekend, 
the New York Times headline, everybody going around, you know, going crazy, mass graves, uh, protests across the country, flags lowered on government buildings and stayed lowered on Parliament Hill and all federal buildings for months and months and months. You know, before Chief Casimir had an opportunity to say, uh, excuse me, there's no mass grave here. Didn't matter. Um, the proximate cause was that this was the anniversary of the George Floyd event in the United States. Mm. All the riots and the National Guard being called out in 32 different states. And the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Carolyn Bennett, said, you know, after the report in the New York Times, this is our George Floyd moment. You know, because everyone's talking about George Floyd because it's the anniversary and stuff. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, boy. And the flags came down. And what I found was curious was that what the national indigenous leaders were trying to say in those first two or three days and getting shouted down was that, well, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out six years ago. And there's four specific recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action that deal with residential school graves and children that may be missing uh, from the archival record, at the very least, kids who went to the schools and never came home. The Trudeau government has had six years to do something about this. And they've spent a total of about $7 million, and they just spent it last year. So basically, what the hell? has the federal government been doing on this file? And of course, you know, Trudeau, who's friend of the indigenous people and people of color and, you know, Guru met who, yeah. It basically has for his, you know, his mode of government, if you can imagine a kind of a social media or a Twitter feed in charge of a G7 country, basically. Uh, very, you know, woke Twitter feed, uh, a social media strategy in charge of a G7 country, um, immediately, you know, turned this into, uh, you know, this shock, horror, ghoulish story about the church. We'll blame the church. And it's mm -hmm. everybody that came along before me, because, you know, I'm, you know, Canada was a racist colonial settler state uh, uh, place until I came along. I'm an ally. I'm one of the nice ones. Yeah, he's fixing it. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so... And then the, you know, taking the knee and the teddy bear. And I mean, so you, nobody, you know, nobody was paying attention to the fact that the government itself was a, totally asleep at the switch on this particular file and was not, had not done anything on the issue of very real, uh, kind of an abandoned or ignored, uh, forgotten about uh, graves around residential schools. Uh, and, uh, instead we had a George Floyd moment and he was, you know, he was the cool guy and, uh, but that's how he rolls. Yeah. So that's, I think, you know, I mean, I'm kind of putting that spin on the story. Maybe, I don't know. That's how I see it. Well, I mean, and Trudeau consistently and the liberal government consistently sort of picks up American trans, American activist yeah. trans, ide ideological trans, political trends, and then tries to apply them to Canada, like regardless of whether or not they fit. And most often they don't fit. And he, like he, he's done this with the gun issue as well. Um, he, he's obviously Roe done it with the way. race issue. Yeah, the abortion yeah. issue. He gloms onto these issues that really have nothing to do with Canada and don't make 
any sense in a Canadian context, but uses them because he knows that, you know, it's, it's good for social media and it's probably good for headlines and it fits his, his desire to be perceived as this, yeah, super woke progressive guy. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, fair, fair enough. If that's the way he wants to play it, I guess what I object to (laughs) is that he uses this kind of frivolous politics Mm-hmm. as a substitute uh, and, a, to, and to misdirect mm-hmm. from his own government's failings. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, a week ago, uh, August 1st, Emancipation Day. I've written about this quite extensively, actually. It's something as, uh, because of the work that I do is concern of mine. And that is the traffic in slave goods around the world, the persistence of slavery on earth, um, the enslavement of the, the Muslim minorities of Xinjiang, uh, and so on. And I've noticed, uh, and I've written about, uh, how Canada, unlike the UK, unlike the United States, unlike Australia, which have law, anti-slavery laws on the books for decades, Canada doesn't have one. And the only reason we're starting to pay attention to the traffic in slave goods now is um, because the renegotiated NAFTA, the Canada-US-Mexico Free Trade Agreement, requires us to have law prohibiting the traffic in slave goods. Uh, We still don't. And the last attempt at it was just shunted off again to a parliamentary committee about two months ago. So August 1st is uh, Emancipation Day. It's the commemoration of the ending of slavery in the British Empire. Um, in the 1830s. And um, it's actually been celebrated a lot in Canada until Trudeau came along. It's like, oh, I just discovered it. Uh, You know, where I live in British Columbia, back in the colonial period in the 1850s, it was Emancipation Day was a civic holiday. In fact, the governor was uh, what he would today be known known as a black man. Back then he was called an octoroon. His wife was an Irish Cree. Uh, flourishing sort of uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic society that he oversaw. And they celebrated the the emancipation of slaves throughout the British Empire every year. Trudeau turned it into, and he stated, you can go on the government website, what is Emancipation Day? What's it all about? What are we recognizing it for? And it's about the persistence of um, systemic anti-black racism in Canada and uh, the legacy of slavery. Well, you know, actually, Canada was formulated in 1867, and decades before, you know, the colonies of Upper Canada had abolished slavery, and uh, 18, you know, 1830-something, uh, slavery was, was eliminated in the British Empire, and it's a very, very real issue today. Uh, that the federal government isn't doing anything about. So rather than have anybody talk about actually existing slavery today, we'll, we'll, you know, he'll be a white ally and he'll be talking about anti-black racism and stuff like that. Yeah. It's the way he rolls. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the impact of this story and of Trudeau's response on indigenous communities? Well, I, I, I guess I, I should say, you know, it's quite possible that some, some good kind of came of it, you could say. I think there's a lot of kids, a lot of young people 
who might have been teenagers the last time we had one of these national long overdue reckonings, maybe they're not kind of clued in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm totally open to the notion that uh, maybe some good came of it. Certainly it got the federal government off its backside to do some funding on this stuff. They had put aside 30 million. The Graves issue blew up. They've now dedicated more than 300 million. Now, you know, I don't want to be too cynical, but I guess it it probably makes sense for this government with so many unresolved issues with respect to Indigenous poverty, uh, the fact that, you you know, getting basic drinking water on so many reserves in the country remains unfulfilled. I mean, the situation Uh, on reserves in general is really awful still, both in terms of issues like drinking water, but also in terms of like ongoing generational abuse, um, sexual abuse, the trafficking of indigenous girls into the city for prostitution, essentially. Yeah. And so, you know, it makes sense, I think, for the federal government and also unresolved land claims. I mean, uh, you know, something like I'm going to say a quarter of of the Canadian land mass isn't covered yet by treaty. Uh, and there've been a series of court decisions by the Supreme Court of Canada that basically say, well, you know what, you, you don't, the crown can't really exercise jurisdiction here. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, in the North, the Inuit, uh, you know, their tuberculosis rates are something like 300 times the rate of, uh, you know, non-Indigenous people in the South. Mm. But I get, you know, from the federal government, you spend $300 million in having, you know, Indigenous people rummaging around in old graveyards is probably, it works for them. I hate to be cynical, but, you know, if you, if an Indigenous community says, okay, you know, we actually still own this land because we have no treaty and we're going to start acting like it, that's kind of scary to people like Trudeau. But if they say, well, we want a, wo- a wellness center because we're wounded and we need somebody to stroke our backs. Hey, he's there. So, I mean, I don't, as I say, I mean, maybe I'm being too cynical, but um, all all I'm asking really is that we not not tell lies. I don't think that's too much to ask. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. And I, I sort of think that we've, or some of us, obviously not you, (laughs) we've, as Canadians, as North Americans, I'd say we've lost touch with why truth matters and why truth is important. Because I do suspect that a lot of progressive activists, for example, might see this this situation and be like, well, you know, if it creates good, like, you know, if it brings yeah. these issues about Indigenous people in Canada to light, then who cares if it wasn't true? You know, it's like, the ends are more important than the means. But, you know, why does it matter? Why does the truth matter? Why does truth in reporting matter? It matters because, and I will, I can, I think, address this from a fairly conventional kind of left point of view, is the truth is all we have. We don't have the art there. We don't have armies. We don't have the banks. We don't own the factories but we got the truth and that's all we've ever had. And I think, uh, you know, if we lose sight of that, we're, you know, we're in trouble. 
and I think, look around you, we're in trouble. <laughs> um that that i mean that that's i think really the uh, to my mind that's that's the source of the the incapacity of the liberal left to confront trumpism i mean the guy became the president of the united states for goodness sake um and if you problematize the truth uh to the extent that it has been and you know this is what happens mm-hmm. so it matters And it also matters because uh, the production of knowledge ends. It it comes to an end. Um, And what we end up with is sort of, you know, if we're lucky, at best, kind of warring camps. But it matters because it's certainly, I mean, if people, I I think Jonathan Rauch makes a very good kind of analogy. He says, you know, people want to believe that Elvis is still alive. That's all right. Fair, fair play. But when you get it into when it, when that kind of stuff comes into public policy, it matters. Because like, where do you send Elvis's social security check? What's the address? Like, what do we do? Um, and I think a lot of people. I haven't been involved at all in the in the in the sort of culture war trans rights stuff. But I, I see. I may be wrong, but I, what I see in it is is the same thing um, that people like Ophelia Benson and particularly other feminists I really respect have seen in it in this, in, in the, in the matter of epistemology is if you substitute belief for knowledge, no good can come of this. <laughs> so if somebody says, well, I believe I'm a guy or I'm a, I'm a, if some guy says, I'm a believe I'm a woman. I believe I'm a woman. I don't want to, you know, fine, fair play lad. I mean, pardon me. You know, we'll get along. In fact, I have trans people in my circle and everything's fine. You know, you're polite and you try to not, you for, you know, you try not to forget and you try to re- refer to in the third person, the fellow as a she or whatever. You know, that's great. It's fine. But, you know, when you start forcing women to take men on their shinty or hurling or rugby teams um or when you're forced to take them into women's shelters i think this is sort of a public policy issue that we need to rethink Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't think but i think at its heart it is that same kind of um epistemic issue that has so i think enfeebled the news media conflation of knowledge and belief and has produced such distrust uh, for journalism among perfectly reasonable people. Right. And I mean, and in terms of the trans issue, you know, it also comes down to, because that that issue of using correct pronouns has been, um, you know, that's been adopted as policy by the media, and that impacts obviously news stories and then it in turn impacts data because we end up having stories about women committing violence against women or women raping children or women being convicted on child pornography charges and they're in fact not women which in turn impacts things like funding for you know efforts to combat violence against women or funding for shelters that support women escaping. I mean, it impacts all sorts of things, but yeah, you know, there are, there are concrete issues and then there's the issue of the truth and why the truth matters and why it's important to be able 
to speak the truth, um, including, for example, for like women or girls who are in a change room and are like, there's a man with a penis in here. And then being told, no, that's a woman. Don't be disrespectful. You know, it's like, it's crazy making. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, I think so. It's kind of obviously crazy making. Yeah. Um, but these, these, this kind of epistemic relativism, it's sometimes been called, um, I think really has really serious implications. Um, it's where liberal democracy dies, I think. Mm. Um, because, you know, liberal democracy is, is, is founded on the contention of ideas and um, the mediation of, uh, of forces that require things like the rules of evidence, like uh, fact-checking, like robust peer review, um, falsification, verification. And if you throw the, all of that stuff out the window, you know, it's actually a lot of people have uh, talked about I mean, I hate the term woke in the same way I hate the term political correctness. But what else? Are you, I mean, I don't know what else to just. I know I'm sick of the about. term, too, but I use it because I don't know yeah, how what do you to do? describe exactly. what's happening. <laughs> and it's a lot shorter and more succinct than the frivolous preoccupations of the bourgeoisie, because basically that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Has, has curiously absolutely no genuine connection to the historic mission of the left and the legacy of the left but yeah it's kind of adopted that language and people say well that's the left well you know i can say okay sure it is as long as we put left in quotation marks um but this is i think uh it is a very major concern of mine you can see it happening with the decline of democracy around the world uh we've been on the ropes now for i think 18 years in a row the retreat of democracy um, the withering of democracy, the decline of uh, the rise of the police state bloc at the United Nations, mm. um, the absolute collapse of, 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 of liberal democratic movements and states uh, in, in Central Asia and the Middle East. Um, and it happens. This is the way it happens. When, when knowledge is replaced with belief and what you are required to believe and you submit to that, I mean, I'm not saying this is the direction Canada's headed, but what usually happens is the next thing you know, there's a knock on the door in the middle of the night. It's uh, not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, as I said earlier, you know, the truth is really all we've got. And so we struggle through. I think we muddle through. I really don't know. I mean, I think I, I don't propose that I have any kind of solution to this except to try to tell the truth yeah what else to do i i don't either i mean i was going to ask you how do we fix journalism in canada yeah well you know a lot of people just say you know defund the cbc that would be a good start i curiously i've always been like double their funding that's been my line but can we Ugh. have some proper journalism, please? You know, I'm so disappointed and frustrated with the CBC that I'd be inclined to defund them too. But it's yeah, sad. I mean, I, I was raised on the CBC, right? Yeah, like too. the soundtrack to my childhood is Susie yeah. Radio. But yeah, and, I, and I, 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 I don't. I really don't know what to say. Um, I think I've been reading a little bit of Antonio Gramsci again. I don't know if you know this guy, 
bit, yeah. <laughs> he's an Italian Marxist, yeah. And I think he's been misread deliberately, and he sort of, you know, identified a cer certain pathologies on the left in, in his time, in his prison writings, and the people who understand themselves as the left, instead of understanding this as a corrective, they'll say, oh, let's do that. Um, but the idea of hegemony, you know, um, you've got a prime minister, you've got an entire state apparatus, you've got the CBC and, you know, even the National Post that I work for, everybody is sort of funded in one way or another by the state. And I don't even know where I stand on that, quite frankly, anymore. I mean, I, I understand you know, if, heck, if the CBC is going to get all that money, maybe maybe private newspapers should get some money too. I don't know, but what what it this this kind of system lends itself to is is a kind of a hegemonic worldview, mm -hmm. and this government particularly is insistent upon imposing a new belief system. It's kind of like a religion, but an entirely new belief system on Canada and Canadians that this is the way we have to understand Canadian history. Mm -hmm. This is how we have to understand who we are as a people. Uh, this is how we have to understand uh, the, uh, our relationships with first nations people. Um, and uh, if a whole bunch of uh, churches get burned down in the process, who cares? It's understandable. It's, this is not healthy. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I mean, do you think, I mean, do you think that it's fixable or perhaps that's where your way of saying that there's no answer? Like in terms of the journalism question specifically, I mean, there's a big problem with Canadian media in Canada. First of all, it's like the media landscape in Canada is very small, so there's really not much room for anything to change. There's, you know, the CBC, which... I think you might disagree with me is overfunded and I think we should just get rid of it at this point because I think if they were sure given enough. more money, they'd continue to do the same thing they're already doing, which is to control the narrative. Um, and I think that new reporters coming up of Canada, coming up in Canada, you know, young journalists are too scared to tell the truth because they need jobs. And again, the media landscape is so small that where do they go if they're canceled? Like they're, sent off to the Yukon or something like that. I mean, they'd have to leave the country. Yeah. I, it, it also ta it takes up space, right? I mean, I, 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 uh, I've learned a lot from my conservative friends over the last few years. Uh -huh. I have some conservative friends. Apparently, it's buy low, sell high. Did you know that? I mean, the whole economy works that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who knew? Um, uh but the, the, the idea that, uh, you know, if you if you occupy so much of the marketplace with subsidized media uh, and, you know, if you pull the pin on all that, it's not like journalism is going to disappear. People are looking for. Uh, people want to know what's actually going on out there, people would like all kinds of opinions. Yes, please. All kinds of d debate. Yes. Yes, indeed. But let's have that, you know, the the. the the debate based on objective reality and um the the problem that i think that is has emerged most in a most pronounced way among people who fancy themselves to be liberals mm -hmm. um is that there is there's no way to have there's no basis for a for a decent disagreement 
let alone agreement, because there's no basis. There's no right. understanding of what we're, you know, what we're, what the argument's about or what the agreement is about. Um, and there's fear. There's a tremendous amount of fear among journalists. Um, social media has a lot to do with that. But there's been a kind of a hybridization of, you know, social media and and legacy media and new media and uh, propaganda platforms. It's mm -hmm. a very, very strange environment. And I do think that uh, people need to trust themselves a lot more. People need to, you know, I don't know that there's much you can do in terms of state. I'd like to think there was, but I don't think that, the, that state intervention you know, to, 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 to deal with misinformation and fake news and so on. At least in this government's case, I'm sorry, I, I've lost faith in the capacity. And I'm not somebody who argues for a small state. I'm not a libertarian. But, and I, I you know, I, I respect a lot of libertarian arguments on this front, but um, I just don't have any reason to believe that any good can come of it, any good at all. Mm -hmm. Um. And so if you pull the pin and you make a lot of room, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Will we all turn into, you know, you all get into trucks and head to Ottawa, you know, or, or will we just try to take care of each other and be a little bit kinder and gentler to our neighbors and worry more about, you know, food security and, and national security and uh, take better control of immigration and refugees? I know. Why don't we have half a million refugees instead of just throwing it open to half a million rich people? There you go. There's a policy proposal. Um, well, uh, I mean, I I don't know that I have a solution. I've definitely been asking around as much as possible. I do. Um, I think that it's good that a lot of a lot of good journalists have been leaving legacy media and going independent. Um, I think that a lot of these types have been able to do good journalism in that way, better journalism perhaps even than they were able to yeah, do from within definitely. these institutions. Um, we can't do everything that way because we need more funding for investigative funding or investigative reporting, I'm sorry. Um, so I don't know. I think that new models will pop up. I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful that that will happen anyways as these old models fall apart. And I think that people have lost faith in these media institutions and I think that they're getting less funding as a result. So things are going to change. Things are changing already. So we'll see. Speaking of which, I yes. do have a newsletter on Substack. Indeed. So tell us where people can find you and your work and to support you and your work. Uh, you can, it's real easy. Just Google me, Terry Glavin, the real okay. story Substack. That'll you'll get to my place, and 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 it's uh, you know a lot of people like uh, a woman I very much respect in in America, uh, Barry Weiss. Mm -hmm. I think she's is, great. You, can, you know you can, and then there's Katie Herzog. I I mean I just I love Katie Herzog. Yeah, I love her too. And Jesse Singel and those guys. Matt but Payne, I, I haven't left. Good. I haven't left Legacy Media. I mean I still work you know uh, pretty hard for the Ottawa Citizen, the National Post, but I need room. I need yeah. room and I need time and I need, you know, to, to, to conduct deeper investigations and to give people background on the stories that there's only so much space, you know, in, 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 in newsprint to, uh, to explore. So. 
Yeah, for sure. And then there's this Megan Murphy person. She's pretty. Cool. <laughs> there you go. Um, thanks so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate this conversation. I sorry, appreciate your if, work. Sorry if I kind of you know was banging on there for a while, sort of yada yada. No, no apologies. I I appreciate it. It was really interesting, and I'm I was really I'm really happy to hear your perspective on all this. And you know I'm grateful for the coverage that you did on this story. And uh, I hope that other people will pay attention and that, you know, hopefully it'll have an impact on other journalists for sure and how people are doing reporting in Canada. Thank you so much. Thank you again for your time. We'll speak again at some point soon, I hope. Have a great day. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and weekly private live streams. Alternatively, you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm via the support button. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and have no major funders, advertisers, institutional support, grants, or sponsors. It's all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like from $5 a month to $20 to $100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.